Welcome to Lady Bits in Leadership, a brave space where women come together to share stories about our bodies, our sexuality, and motherhood. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Vogel, and my mission in life is helping women feel less alone, process their trauma, and build the lives they desire. So if you're ready to join a community of women who have found their voices, who have become liberated from shame and reclaim their power, then you're in the right place, girl. You found us. We're so happy you're here. Y'all, we got Sarah Moshman on the pod today, and I, for one, am so excited. Sarah is an Emmy award-winning filmmaker. She's a director. She's an author. She is a TEDx speaker. She's a mama. She's a baddie. She is all about telling women's stories because she knows that we are more than sidekicks. We are more than sex objects. We have complex narratives that need to be shared because she knows that when we share our stories with one another, it helps people feel less alone. It helps people feel empowered. And honestly, it just helps spread the word about baddie mama all over the place. She's about to be featured for her newest film, A Mother is Born, in MomFest, which is a grassroots volunteer-led nonprofit organization that serves as a career development and advocacy resource for mothers working in film and television. What? A Mother is Born is all about the milk-stained haze of the fourth trimester. So like after a baby is born, we're talking however long that is for someone. First three weeks, first six months, first year, first two years. My brother is about to have a baby with his wife. And he was like, but when did you feel good again after like giving birth? And I was like, it's a really hard question to answer, but I'm going to say two and a half years. And he was like, what? I'm like, dude, it's different for everyone. But it was a really hard struggle for me after having a baby for two and a half years. That's when I really caught my flow. That's when I really started to enjoy motherhood. And that's a really long time to be in this black hole of motherhood. Big part of why I do the work that I do is to help moms get further faster. It's just a long time to be in a haze. So her film, A Mother is Born, is all about that. She describes it as when women say, I love being a mom, comma, It's everything after that comma. It's all the things that we often feel like either people don't understand us, they don't understand the experience, they don't understand the negative perspectives that we're feeling about motherhood. So she really has used this film to elevate that side of motherhood, which I, for one, am so, so grateful of. She has been featured on Netflix, various streaming platforms. She won an an Emmy, like get out of here. Her films have been featured in space. She recently did a film called Unbound. It's a short fiction film about the first mother to go to space about Dr. Anna Fisher. And I saw it online. It's amazing. It's like under 10 minutes and the amount of tears that you will cry, the amount of movement in your soul that you you will feel really shows that she's just an excellent storyteller. She just has the ability to elicit emotions and make a emotional connection with someone in a short period of time. She's also directed many films, many documentaries, including Losing Sight of Shore, which is about the incredible journey of four women, the first four women to cross the Pacific Ocean in a tiny rowboat. Yep, you heard that right. They literally rowed by hand across the Pacific, and Sarah was there to help them direct and tell their stories. That is featured in this podcast and totally worth it. I am just so thrilled for you 
to hear from her, to be inspired by her, to watch her films, to come along for her journey and the ride of being just an amazing storyteller, someone who is here in our corner telling our stories and making sure that you know that your story matters. So without further ado, here's Sarah Moshman. But before we start this episode, I have to put a quick plug in for my girl, Kelsey Audison Viegas of Auto Books. Listen, if you're a business owner of a small or large business, you do not have time to be doing your own books. No one has time for QuickBooks except for my girl, Kelsey. So if you wanna be focused on building profits in your business rather than tooling over all this Excel spreadsheets and different queries of QuickBooks, then our girl is for you. You can find out more about Kelsey and her bookkeeping solutions at O-T-T-O-B-O-O-K-S-L-L-C.com. That's O-T-T-O-B-O-O-K-S-L-L-C.com. Y'all, we got Sarah Moshman on Lady Bits and Leadership. Welcome, my friend. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks um, for having me. It's so good to have you here. I am so glad that we were connected by a mutual friend because when I started to look at all the amazing things that you're doing in cinema and film, being a badass female director, I was like, I'm sorry. How have you not sorry, been in my this? life? What's happening? <laughs> what is happening over there in Burbank? What's going on? And so I would love for you to introduce yourself to the audience because I could do it, but you're the expert on yourself. So Okay, sure. <laughs> um, so hey everybody, I'm Sarah Moshman. I'm a filmmaker. I grew up in the Chicago area. I've always wanted to be a filmmaker. It's just sort of in my blood. My dad's a filmmaker as well, so cameras were always around in my house. Um, I went to film school at the University of Miami in Florida, and then I moved out to LA about 15 years ago in 2008. I did the reality TV thing for a while, so I was a field producer on Dancing with the Stars, if you've ever oh, heard of that fine. show. Um, so I was like a one-woman band in the dance rehearsal studio, filming and interviewing the celebrity dancer couples and learning oh. how to be a storyteller in an efficient, you know, time-sensitive environment. Um, that was like my first five years out here in the film and TV world. And then in 2013, I really had a hunger to create my own work again. You know, I missed film school. I missed this, like, you're an artist. What, what's your voice? What do you want to say to the world? Um, and I was at the, at the time working in television, I was a tiny piece in a massive machine. And so in 2013, I set off to make my own documentaries. And so I've made three feature length documentaries, which I'm happy to talk more about, but they're called The Empowerment Project, Ordinary Women Doing Extraordinary Things, Losing Sight of Shore, and Nevertheless. And then um, more recently, I've been moving into the narrative realm. So I directed my first, we'll call it professional narrative short. I've definitely made narrative films in college and high school. Uh, it is called Unbound, and it's based on a true story about the first mother to go to space. Dr. Anna Lee Fisher in 1984. And this coming Monday, if you can believe it, I'm about to direct my next narrative short. It's called A Mother is Born. And I wrote it as well, first screenplay I've ever written. It's super wow. vulnerable and a little dark and surreal. And it's all about the shifting identity of becoming a mom. Um, and it's, it's very much a version of my experience becoming a mother. I have two kids who are five and two. So that's kind of my film world. I, I direct all kinds of things. Um, I'm also a teacher and a speaker, 
Um, so yeah, that's me. That's Sarah Moshman. That's Sarah Moshman. <laughs> what she failed to, um, you know, hype up was that my friend here is on Netflix. So <laughs> let's just, I mean, let's just I take was, a I was, I was, we'll say I was, uh, Losing Side of Shore was on Netflix worldwide for three years, which was for, such a dream come true. Yeah. Such a dream come true. And that story is so fascinating. I was a rower in college in California. No yes. Okay. Rowing down the Central Valley Delta, yes. <laughs> you know, the beautiful Central Valley, <laughs> if it, anyone Sarah. knows, Northern <laughs> California. I just, being from Hawaii, moving to the middle of California, I just miss the water. And when my my time as a water polo player in, at the D1 level was over, mm. I I missed I missed so badly being connected to the water and being an athlete. And I got so much power mm. and confidence in myself from being on a team, from being an athlete. It really was transformational for me to participate in sports. It I gave bet. me the the confidence in myself. You know, not only was my body becoming stronger, but my mind was becoming stronger. I was achieving things I never thought I could achieve. And yeah. I never had rowed in my entire life. Oh but my gosh, amazing. Just, You're just like them. They had never, I mean, they weren't professional rowers or professional athletes or anything. Really? Yeah, no, they, they're, they trained. Certainly they weren't foolish about it. They trained very hard to go on the journey. So these four women, they're called the Coxless Crew. And they got in a pink 29 foot ocean rowing boat and rowed across the entire Pacific Ocean from America all the way to Australia, over 8,000 miles. It took them nine months. Um, but if they were here right now on the Zoom, Sarah, they'd be like, you can do it too. Like they're so <laughs> inspiring and just yes. so heroic and just had such a clear sense of focus and purpose. And, and they truly did achieve the impossible. Um, but yeah, they were not professional athletes. Not We're not talking about like four Olympians. We're talking about four ordinary women doing something truly extraordinary. And for those who don't know what a coxswain is, like, because exactly. it's a coxless boat. <laughs> Yes, we're not talking absolutely. about the boys' bits, okay? We're talking yeah. about even though the that person. is hilarious, objectively <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> we're talking about the person, the, the person that generally sits in the front of the boat, who tells the rowers, you know, which side, you know, what they need to do, their pace, etc. Yeah. So these so are four. No, none of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these are four ordinary women. Okay, so walk us through that because okay. I've watched some of your films, but that one I haven't yet been able to watch. Oh. Well, you're so gonna love it. I'm going to love it because as someone who grew up in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and knows how far away it is, the yeah, concept. Yeah, I know the. It's hard enough to take a six-hour plane ride from California to Hawaii. That is true. These ladies rode. Like, can you just briefly walk us through? Sure. Where did they get this idea? Why did they decide to do it? Just well, start there. Yeah, this is totally. wild. So this all came into my orbit. So like, think of, I had just finished my first feature length documentary called The Empowerment Project. I've been traveling around and um, showing the film to schools and groups and organizations, having this amazing experience, like realizing how powerful documentaries especially can be. And I get this email in January, 2015 from a blogger in the UK named Fiona, who had interviewed me about that film. And she just wrote this like super innocent email, like, sup, Sarah, like, <laughs> just wanted you to know these four women are going to get in a rowboat and row across the Pacific Ocean. Thought you might want to know about it. Like just this like bomb being like lightly dropped in my lap. And I was like, wait, what? And I agreed to Skype with them. Of course, sorry, Zoom, but it was Skype at the time, you know, 
in 2015. <laughs> and um, with Laura and Natalia, Laura Penhall and Natalia Cohen, the next day, and like I had no expectation. I thought, well, maybe they just want to know what GoPro to buy. Like I just really had no clue what I was getting myself into. And by the end of that hour long conversation, I couldn't believe that nobody was going to be telling their story. Like they were going to be leaving three months from that call and they had no camera crew, no producer, no filmmaker like me, you know, attached to it. They certainly wanted to capture their journey, but they had absolutely no idea how, um, and were so busy getting prepared to go that they weren't worrying about that. Um, so I was like, this is too extraordinary. Although I knew nothing about rowing in so many ways, still don't, <laughs> you know, I, I felt like I was the right person to help them tell their story. And so I showed them the empowerment project and, and we got to know each other over Skype for, for a few months. I interviewed them over Skype just to like get to know their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the team leader is Laura Penhall. She's an incredible sports um, physio. So she helps other athletes, especially disabled ones, um, get, you know, get their sport going, you know, being able to support them physically, emotionally, mentally. Um, so she had been working with so many different athletes and was so inspired by them. She wanted to take her own journey that was sort of like, against all odds, achieving the impossible. And no team of four had ever rowed across the Pacific Ocean, men or women. Wow. Important to note that. Um, And so Laura's sort of like our hero. You know, she's the one assembling the team. It took her four years to get to the start line. So this didn't just like come up. She worked on this endlessly, you know, in terms of fundraising and getting the boat designed just for them and assembling her crew, which is very hard to do. Um, she worked with a sports psychologist to figure out who does she want on that boat? You know, she she ultimately determined, they determined she didn't want four Lauras on the boat. She needed yeah. other women that had very different strengths than her so that when they are in peril, when they are, you know, wanting to escape, what, how will they comfort each other? How will they communicate and, and how can they get through it? Um, and so they were raising money as they rode for two charities, um, Walking with the Wounded, which supports um, female service members, as well as um, uh, breast cancer care in the UK. So that's why part of the reason why the boat was pink mm-hmm. um, for breast cancer. So, yeah, there were so many reasons. And then the other the other women in the boat, which you'll see in the film, all had their own you know, purposes and, and drives for why they wanted to take the journey. But but overall, they all wanted to do something bigger than themselves and, and really find out what they're made of, you know, out there in the ocean. It's really, yes, it's a documentary about rowing, but like rowing is just the vessel to tell a larger story about female friendship, about friendship in general, about perseverance and the power of the human spirit. So it's, it's a really, unbe- it's still hard to believe that it all happened, truly. I mean, I could go on and on about the technicality of how we made it, but like that's in broad strokes, you know, no pun intended, how uh, <laughs> 24 hours a day. Well, it's important to know they rode 24 hours a day, two hours on, two hours off. So they took turns um, for nine months. Yeah. And then they stopped along the way. So San Francisco to Hawaii, Hawaii to Samoa mm-hmm. and Samoa to Australia. So it was a three-stage row. That is yeah. incredible. Unbelievable. I bet as a filmmaker, especially one who focuses on women's stories and telling women's stories, the like, hold up. Oh my God. No one's telling. I could be the I one mean, to tell this. I was like, surely ESPN or whatever equivalent right. in the UK, like they're from the UK and South Africa. And I thought, how is it possible that no one's all over this? And isn't that the problem? You know, that 
we're not putting our money where our mouth is. We say we care about women's stories and then we don't, you know, it takes someone like me who's foolish enough to be like, I can do it, you know? Um, so I often reflect on that and think, even if there had been a production company interested in this or a distributor or a network, like I wouldn't have been the one hired to tell it. You better believe that I wouldn't have been qualified, qualified enough um, to make the film. So there was something really special about the fact that they were betting on themselves. And so was I, you know, I was betting on them and I was betting on myself and my crew and my ability. You know, I made this film for two years, essentially alone. I hired people when I could, of course, you know, I you, no one makes a film alone. Um, but I didn't have a production company attached. I didn't have like a celebrity executive producer. I was pitching the idea of the project all over town, wherever I could. I, you know, I only have so many contacts here. Um, and there was no shortage of interest. Everyone's like, wow, what an amazing story. I have all these questions. And I'm like, awesome. Can you write a check though? Like, can I have some money? Because <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to get to Samoa in a month. You know, we're yeah. like, I, this story is unfolding in real time. Like there was so much urgency, um, which, you know, ended up probably helping, right? Like if I had a year to prepare, I'd probably talk myself out of it eight times, but it was like, no, no, they're leaving in two and a half months, whether you're ready or not. So wow. like I made sure I was freaking ready. Yeah. So it was, it was just an extraordinary challenge. No, I was not on the boat. Like to be very clear, there was no camera boat. There was no follow boat. I bought them cameras and hard drives and microphones, and I taught them how to use the tools so they could tell their own story at sea. And then I met them on land along the way. And I, so I'd come out to Hawaii like a couple of days before they were going to get in and I would get on a boat myself and like go out and meet them, you know, six hours offshore and then film them rowing back into land with a drone, with my camera, with a cinematographer when I could afford one. And then I would be with them on land for like seven to 10 days when they would like eat massive burgers. Like they were all like, <laughs> as if they were all like pregnant women. It was the most fun group of women to eat with because they're just like, yes, food. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, okay. Um, and how they would, you know, they still got along so well, even when they were on land and had just spent every second together, literally for months um, and watching them kind of repurpose their boat, clean the boat, get ready to go. Um, and then get back on the boat and set off on the next leg, I would then go, you know, follow them away. Um, it was just an unbelievable journey. And so the film is ultimately a combination of their, their story on the boat. I would like email them questions because they had like a sliver of internet every day. And they had like oh a God. teeny bit of internet. So I would be like, hey, uh, you were, they would do a blog every day. So you, I could keep up with where they were in the world and what they were going through. But even when I read their blog, I didn't know if any of that was actually captured on camera. That was the trickiest part is reading like Emma, for example, saying she was struggling emotionally. And I'm like, this is so compelling. Okay. Can you talk about that on camera? Like just because it was in the blog didn't mean it was on captured. Got it. But then I would email them questions and be like, okay, when you have, when you have time, can you go in the cabin and like hold up the camera and like interview yourself? We called it like diary cam or confessional cam. Um, and so it was really powerful because the closer that me, Sarah, got to them on land in terms of friendship um, and, and trust, the closer that they got to the camera on the boat. So it was really powerful to see the progression of the story from San Francisco all the way to Australia. Um, the way they would talk to the camera would change. It was really powerful to, to then watch the footage later and be like, it's Emma holding the camera being like, Hey, Sarah, here's what's going on. So they would just treat the camera like it was me. And 
we often would say I was like the fifth member of the team, you know, it was just, um, really incredible to see over nine months, them really become storytellers, them really understand that the footage couldn't just be about the wind or the weather or the currents. It's like, okay, that stuff is marginally interesting. Like, but like, to me, it was like, tell me about the emotion. Tell me about who you are. Like, why are you doing this? And what are you going to think about and how, what's going to pull you out of this when you just want to escape or you want to freaking scream because you're in the middle of the Pacific ocean for months. So it just was, that's what my job was. So no, I don't know a lot about rowing, but it was never about that to me. It was Mm -hmm. about who are these individual people and how do we pull out the real story? Um, and so, yeah, the, the journey took nine months and it was, I can't express the the joy and inspiration. I felt watching them, spoiler alert, row into (laughs) Australia, watching them achieve their greatest dream and like set records. They weren't breaking records. They were setting records. Um, and so when they had their big finish in Australia, which you can see in the film, losing set ashore is very dramatic and it's in its own right. Um, just, I'll never, I'll never forget what that felt like to be standing with my camera on the dock, watching them come in of all these people around press, like just watching them achieve this dream and and having had the front row seat the whole way. Oh my God. I'll I'll never forget that feeling. And, and I hope that translates to the end of the film because it was so powerful to watch. Um, and so, yeah, I made the film largely on my own for two years. And then I, made this deal with Netflix, which was just like the greatest dream come true for the film. Um, if you had asked me on day one where I would hope it would end up, that was it. So it was just such a journey for me. I like to say I crossed my own Pacific as well. Um, <sighs> the tagline of the film was everyone has a Pacific to cross. And I'm like, yeah, uh-huh. and this one was mine. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh um, my gosh. I'm like in tears right now. I, I emote very yeah, easily. Yeah. Like when I'm excited, I cry. When I'm sad, I cry. When I'm angry, I cry. It just like all comes out with my, with my tears. But you know, the, I think what stands out the most to me about this whole experience is just the power of, uh, you know, you talking about teaching them how to be storytellers right? Mm -hmm. Is something that, you know, with, for me, with this podcast, the research that I did with women in, you know, their undergraduate experience, learning that they could be a leader. We -hmm. tell ourselves stories about ourselves every single day. I mean, these unconscious messages that just continue to play Mm -hmm. over and over and over in our brain. And the way that we're conditioned as, you know, women and female identified folks is, is we're conditioned to believe that our stories don't matter and therefore yeah. we don't matter. And the because reason our that our whole lives we're watching media and they don't, you know, it's it's a white male protagonist. It's it's we have been told for generations that we don't matter. We're the sidekick, we're the sexual object or we're ignored altogether. Like how could we? How could we? And that is why I love that you're such a disruptor and you're like, no, the time is now and I'm going to do something about it, you know, because I think there it's one thing to be. And you even said, like, if I had a year, I might have talked myself out of it. But mm-hmm. the courage to just jump in and having that time sensitive space to be like, all right, it's now or never, you Let's know, go. and I think yeah. I I was listening to an interview or a TED talk that you had done about your first film and how a group of you and other women just like jumped in a van and we're like, (laughs) we're going to find women leaders across the United States and amplify 
ordinary women doing extraordinary things. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so that, and it sounds super fun. I mean, you all were in an oh airplane God, the over I mean, the Golden there, Gate Bridge. Plan. I don't want to make it sound like we were just like, let's go today. Like we planned, we fundraised and planned for months. Of course. But then I think filmmaking is all about, my dad always said, if you make the film you set out to make, you did it wrong. And that is so true, especially with documentary. These are real people. These are real stories and you're in the world, you know? So I, I love that about documentary filmmaking is you have a plan, good for you, but then you kind of throw it out the window and just go with what's actually happening in front of you. And Losing Set Ashore certainly taught me that in spades, but even the Empowerment Project, we got me and four other female filmmakers. We started in LA. We drove all the way to New York over the course of one month. Um, and we interviewed 17 women in total from like a pilot, an athlete, astronaut, mathematician, like all these incredible women in STEM, as well as a theater director, a fashion stylist, you know, a chef. I mean, it was just so cool. And going into it, we're thinking like, oh, we might not really have much in common with like an admiral in the Navy, but I want to hear her story. And then of course you do, because we all have so much in common as women and the experiences that we share overcoming stereotypes and facing discrimination and just being doubted or ignored or demoted or, you know, anything, the experience that we have are actually quite universal. And that was really exciting to see, like, just because we're in film and, and this woman is a chef doesn't mean we don't have a lot in common. Um, and hearing these stories every day in that month was just so magical. And then to back it up with an all-female crew, it just felt so in alignment, you know, it's like, there's a lot of stories out there showcasing women now. And, and I'm so inspired by every single one and grateful for the representation, but I also want there to be representation of women behind the camera. And, and it mm. matters who is telling the story. It matters who's behind the lens. It matters who's editing it together. Um, and, and that's really important to me as well. And I have to imagine that similarly, the trend continues behind the camera, that there's very few women, oh, yeah. probably even less women of color behind the film on the back end of editing, you know, it's writing. Like we're here, but we're not getting the same opportunities. Like to be very clear, there are tons yeah. of incredibly talented okay. women, but they're not rising in the ranks in the same way. Because of course, if men are the gatekeepers, if men are the ones that get to give the green light for a project and they might not identify with that story. So they might not think the audience would like that story because they're in their mindset. Mm -hmm. And it's not as binary as, as I'm making it sound. Of course, it's, it's not so black and white. Of course, there are men that appreciate and value stories about women, but um, it's so much harder to get a female driven story, a female protagonist story off the ground. Um, and then on top of that, even if there is one, it's like a female director might not have the same credits as her male counterpart because she hasn't had the same opportunities. It's just this vicious cycle where it's like you need all this experience, but then you need to get experience to have experience like it just never ends. And then, and then on top of that, there's, you know, discrimination and sexual harassment, and stereotyping and, and um, you know, if you're God forbid you're a mom, you know, you need time mm -hmm. off for maternity leave, which doesn't exist. There's just so many hurdles um, for women in film, especially. So it's, it's more important than ever that we find a way to tell our stories and continue to prove ourselves so that we can get those larger opportunities that we reach a wider audience. And I think that's why all of my films have been just, just a Herculean effort of, of I'm going to do it anyway. Like that's always been my sort of ethos is like, I don't wait around for permission to make something. If I need to make it on a smaller budget and take on more roles just so that it gets made, mm -hmm. I will do that. You know, like 
I love losing sight of shore and the happy ending that we had because we didn't have like all the things you're supposed to have, like a Sundance premiere or a fancy production company attached or a celebrity executive producer. I didn't have any of that. And I managed to be scrappy and get a sales agent on board who then helped me license the film to Netflix worldwide. And I was able to pay back my investors and finally pay myself after two years of working on it for nothing. Um, So I I love to share that story with other filmmakers because it's like, it is possible. It might be the exception to the rule, but it is possible for us to infiltrate and get in there and get our story shared to millions of people. You know, I still hear from people on social media almost every day about losing set ashore um, now that it's on like iTunes and Amazon. So it's, it's really incredible what you can do with the film. You just got to roll up your sleeves and, and get to work. <laughs> and you teach people how to do that. I mean, you wrote a book about how someone with an idea for a documentary can get started. So talk to us a little bit about the yeah. book and what someone who's like, yes, yes, I want to tell my story or I want to get started with even just the thought of imagining my story. What is my story arc? Where am I going? Processing what I've been through. So talk to us about that book. Yeah. Yeah, so in in 2020, um, I just finished my third feature doc. It's called Nevertheless. It's all about sexual harassment in the workplace and school context. And I was pregnant with my son. Um, He's a pandemic baby. He's two now. Um, And so I couldn't make a movie. I was pregnant and the pandemic. So I couldn't pick up a camera and get to work. So I had been wanting to write this book for a long time. You know, I just want to share what I've learned. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm just... I'm sort of like the the anti-establishment in some ways. Like I'm just doing things my own hustle, scrappy way and paying very close attention to how things work. And I'm always seeking advice from other filmmakers and always wanting to mentor other filmmakers and just saying like, hey, you can do this too. This is not impossible, especially for women. Um, and so, yeah, in the pandemic, I had been shopping around this like book proposal with a literary agent. Again, I was trying to do it like the quote right way, um, where you like get a publishing deal and all that. And I'm just like not a big enough star. Fine. Um, and so we got some interest from publishers, but ultimately, you know, it just wasn't happening. And so when the pandemic hit and I was pregnant, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to self-publish this book. I'm just going to write it and then I'll have it in the world and I can, people can buy it on Amazon and what's really the difference, you know? So every Monday at like 5 a.m. in the pandemic, I would get up early and I would sit there pregnant at my computer and like write as much as I could until my daughter got up. Um, and over, I want to say it took like maybe six, nine months, um, I wrote the whole freaking book. Um, and I worked with an editor and I worked with a designer and then I self-published it on Amazon, uh, October, 2020, and it's called empowered filmmaking, how to make a documentary on your own terms. And it has, um, I don't have it nearby, but I, it has an adorable picture of me and my daughter on the front. Aww. I'm holding a camera and she's with me. Um, and to me, that really signifies like not only on your own terms as any filmmaker, but also as a, a mom, like being a mom in film. I'm I'm at that intersection of being a mom and a woman in film. So it feels like sometimes compounded difficulty. Um, so it is incredibly important that I hope other filmmakers just like me are, are shepherding through this next generation and saying, you can do this. So the book really takes you through every step of the process from how do you find an idea? What do you do when you have an idea? a little bit of basics on camera, audio, and lighting, which I'm very passionate Mm -hmm. about teaching, Um, fundraising. Oh my gosh. I have like 60 pages in there on how I fundraise precisely for all three of my documentaries from Mm -hmm. crowdfunding to grants, to investors, to private donors, working with brands, like you name it, I've done it. 
And I share all of that, like the ups, the downs, the mistakes, the triumphs. I'm very transparent. I try to be as authentic as possible. I, I recognize as a white cisgender woman that I come from a lot of privilege. I acknowledge that. Like, um, And I also talk about distribution, how I distributed each one of my films, what the budgets were. Like, I am very wow. transparent. Um, and so it's been really fun just having the book in the world, like, no, I didn't get a publishing deal, but I, I make sales, you know, people buy the book or when I do a speaking engagement, I bring like a stack of books and people buy them. And it's just so nice to have it. Um, I'm just grateful that I like got it all out. <laughs> and so that it's always something I can share with people. Like if you want to know how I did it, it's right here. Like I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to hide anything. Um, there's no smoke and mirrors here. Like here's exactly how I made my three feature length documentaries, all of which have created, you know, in some ways, global impact been seen by hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of people. Netflix doesn't share their data, so I'll never really Damn. know. Um, What's up with and, that, Netflix? And also revenue. It's like, how do you actually make money from this? Like, we all need this to be a viable path as careers and, you know, viable business models. So I'm, I'm pretty transparent about that as well, like how I made money from all three films and what that looked like. So, um, yeah, I'm just grateful that I, like, spent the time to write it because I don't have time to do that now, but I'm just like, and I don't know if I'll ever write another book, but that was really fun to write. And and it was just like, I always need something to, in creation of something. I don't, I feel the most myself and alive when I'm making a movie typically, but that was sort of like my replacement, like writing that book feels like I was making a film in, in a way. So it was, I needed that in the pandemic. Absolutely. And what a gift that you're able, you know, that'll just continue to give, right? Like nothing in this nothing in the book sounds like it will expire. It is all going to be. The landscape is constantly changing, but the principles are the same. Like, how do you present, how do you pitch yourself? How do you come up with an idea? How do you fundraise? What does distribution look like? I mean, that part is always changing, but yeah, Yeah. I think the principles will mostly will last. (laughs) And I think that, you know, whether or not someone aspires to create a, um, a documentary themselves, Mm -hmm. I think, the concepts again of like storytelling, we are, especially in the world where we have so much access to social media, we're constantly telling our story. We are all storytellers. And you have to market yourself no matter what you do. You have to be effective at presenting yourself to the world, no matter what industry you're in. So I agree. And there's a whole chapter about interview techniques. Like I think conducting a great interview, like interviewing someone just makes you a better friend, a better (laughs) conversation. I mean, you're excellent at it right now, Sarah, but like, it's just, I think everyone should sort of have that skill too. I I don't know if you're surprised by like adults that are just bad at having conversation. You're like, just ask me a question. Like everyone wants to talk about themselves ultimately. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think I anyone who's been on a bad to... date <laughs> knows exactly, exactly like, what you're talking about. Like, cool, are you not interested in me at all? Okay, like, I feel yeah. like I'm the opposite. I'm just like, tell me everything about that. Ready, go. <laughs> and I think that you and I just have that naturally. I mean, obviously, you grew up in a filmmaker house, but there yeah. are some people that it just naturally... Um, it comes forward. They have a curiosity, you know, for me, I've always been curious about the human experience and I've always kind of found myself in, you know, like I, I went to school to be a counselor. I've worked in a Mm -hmm. counselor counseling position at a college for a long, long time. Um, and now I host a podcast because I'm curious to talk to people, (laughs) reach out to strangers, beautiful strangers like yourself, because I'm just so curious about your life and the impact that you're having that is aligned with what I hope to do. And that what I, what I do in the world, which is to empower women. Right. And I think that, yeah, to your point that it 
makes a really good friend. You want to be a better friend. You want to be a better lover. You want to be a better wife or spouse or whatever. Learning how to interview and getting curious about what's going on between the ears of someone else is so fascinating. I always tell folks, I like to flirt a lot Mm -hmm. and they're like, what? But you're married. I'm like, no, it's not flirting in the sexual sense. It's flirting in the I'm in I'm enraptured in what you're saying. Yeah, totally. I got that. that. People love talking about themselves if you just give them permission to. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. No, I feel the same way. I'm endlessly interested in like the human experience. And it's like, just when you think you know someone's story, you don't. Like, it's really cool to hear how people process based on their childhood. Yeah. I mean, like in another world, I would have been a psychologist. I totally agree. It's like- just fascinating. And I think that all tags into being a filmmaker, like as a documentary filmmaker, that's the structure of the film is like the interviews and like, tell me everything about what that was like. And I feel like I'm, I'm bringing that, trying to bring that to my narrative filmmaking too. Like I made a short based on a real person. So there was so much research to be done about Dr. Anna Fisher, the first mother in space. And now I'm about to make this short about my own motherhood journey. Like it's not me, the character, but I'm definitely pulling from my own experiences to make this film. And when people respond to the script, like we're about to shoot it, but when people read the script and respond to it, it's like, there's just nothing more gratifying to feel like I'm connected with other humans because my experience might mirror theirs, even in some small way. So it's really, yeah. Filmmaking is just like endlessly this pot of inspiration to me. And I'm just like, I want to make all the movies forever. Yeah. I I love that so much. And I, I, that was the first film that stood out when I started researching you Mm. was unbound about Mm. Dr. Anna Fisher, the first mother to go to space. And I'm like tearing up thinking it was, it's such a powerful film. So anyone who's listening, at least go see that one. It's like (laughs) less than 10 minutes. And it's been featured. Has it gone to space yet? Has it done its like space? I'm, I believe so. I was okay. told it did. I don't know officially, but yeah, we won this incredible oh. award from NASA. We won first place at the Cinespace uh, short film competition, which means that Unbound has been shown, as far as I know, on the International Space Station, which is like a dream I didn't even know to have. Can we talk about what is it? What? You're intergalactic, my friend. Not every filmmaker can say that, so thank you. (laughs) No, I mean, it just is like, when you think about the nuts and bolts of that, it's like, okay, so maybe two astronauts are watching it in space, but like, whatever. My film is available on the International Space Station. That is just, I mean, I never could have envisioned that as a possibility when making it. So I that that's one of my favorite parts of these journeys is like, you just set off with a goal of like, I want to make a thing that matters to me. Okay. Now I want to make a thing that matters to other people. Okay. Wow. It's mattering to other people. How do I get it out to more? Mm-hmm. How do I make it? It's like your film kind of grows up and moves out like a kid going to college. Like they're just like, mm-hmm. yeah, thanks for the help. I'm off. And they just like tell you what they need in the world. It's pretty cool wow. to see my work like reflected in others and the things that people pick up about it where you're like, oh, I didn't even plan that. <laughs> like, oh, I didn't even that's just a happy accident or like, Oh, I'm so glad you responded to that. That was really important to me to put in there. Um, It's so unbelievably powerful to hear an audience laugh or see them cry or get these responses um, of them feeling somehow that I've represented their experience or someone they know is, is just so 
incredible. And I'm hoping to do that with all my heart on this next one about motherhood, because there really aren't a lot of representations of early motherhood, like the, the gritty, real, authentic, surreal, dark, confusing emotions that yes. so many of us go through in those early days. So oh, I want to dive um, into it. And I want to like, I want to complete our interview just diving into it. Your okay. inspiration, your experience as a young mother or young meaning like the first couple yeah. of months, because that sure. fourth trimester is yes. no fucking joke. And people like, don't even know to call it that, by the way. Or, or the, they-, they don't know the term matrescence, which is like adolescence, but, yes. but in the say- sense that your identity shifts when you become a mother. Your when brain I- is rewired rewired and sometimes not for the easiest like I my depression complete and I've talked about on the podcast but my depression completely skyrocketed Mm -hmm. after having a baby and same with my anxiety same with my ADHD tendencies like it was always kind of there under the surface but manageable you add a baby and it was like who the fuck am I where did I go I just was where did I go where did I go it is very bizarre feeling to like be in your body and also like, where did I go? It is, it is, here's where, it's so funny because I feel this need to say, I love my baby's butt, comma. Girl, we are the same, are we the same person? Because, but here's what, I keep saying that to my team, my amazing team that's helping me make A Mother is Born. I keep saying, this film exists after the comma. This film is, I love my baby's butt, comma, here's where the movie begins. Because that's it. Like, it's, I'm so disinterested in this, like, sanitized view of motherhood that we all keep spitting back to each other of, like, my heart's beating outside of my body. I love, yes, yes, and, yes, and. Like, I just keep, I think it's taken me five years through therapy, through friendship, through social media to understand that paradox that something can be so wonderful and so awful at the same time. And like, that's okay. And no other part of my life, at least, like I feel very grateful. I didn't have to deal with an extreme amount of grief or, you know, loss before having kids or anything like that. So maybe that's a privilege I didn't even know I had. And now it's like, I just have to get comfortable being uncomfortable all the time. (laughs) And I have to just settle into the paradox of life. Like, I think it's taken me five years to like, just accept that, that like things can be awesome and awful and like, that's okay. (laughs) And it can change minute to minute. Um, (laughs) For sure. So yeah, for me, I mean, I've been with my husband, Ryan, since I was 16, 17 years old. I mean, we've been together now almost 20 years. Um, This year we've been married 10 years. So I never really thought about being a mom. Truly. I just think I like this term, the relationship escalator. Um, where like you just kind of go along with the the milestones of life. Not that I wasn't yeah. and I'm not still very much in love with my husband. Like I wanted all these things on paper, but I wasn't like, I have to be a mom. I have this like maternal instinct that has to be expressed. And some women really do feel that way. And I just wasn't one of those women. Um, being a filmmaker has always been the biggest part of my identity and like my work and my career is so unbelievably important to me. So then it's like, I was 31 when I had my daughter, um, who's now five. And it truly was like a bomb going off in my life. My mom described it that way before I had a daughter. And I was like, oh, that's exactly what it is. So when I gave birth, like I wasn't 
it's not that I was happy or sad. Like there's no good word for it because it was all of that. It was like fascination and confusion. And I just remember them putting her on me and feeling like that's who was in there. Like, I just couldn't connect the dots of like, that's the person like, okay. I think I just slipped into like producer mode. Like I'm extremely responsible and practical and logical. And like, I can plan the hell out of a party and like, I can produce the heck out of a shoot. And like, then this person shows up and you're like, you just click in. Like, I just clicked into like the responsibility, like, okay, now she has to eat. Now she has to sleep. Now I'm changing a diaper. I had never changed a diaper before I had a kid. Same. Right. So it's just, it's like this modern view of motherhood being so like inherent and beautiful and like has to be this certain way. And then when you don't fit into that mold and then the media doesn't reflect that the real story and even us as women don't actually share with each other what's really going on with our bodies and our mind and like the day to day, then you get there and you're like, what, why the hell did anyone tell me that this is what it was like? And even if they had, I wouldn't have believed them or I wouldn't have understood. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's so funny. I was never diagnosed with postpartum depression. I don't know if that's what I had. I truly don't. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I just know that I felt so out of sorts. I felt so lost. I felt so away from myself. And the only way I knew how to find myself again was to make a film. And so when I was eight months pregnant, I had started making Nevertheless, my documentary about sexual harassment, because it just happened to coincide with the Me Too movement unfolding and having a daughter and just feeling like, oh my God, how do I make the world any bit safer for her to exist in? And so she was my motivation. And I did a Kickstarter campaign when she was three months old and I was like still breastfeeding. I raised 50 grand. I mean, I just have no idea. I just was so like looking for me. I think I just was like, I'm doing this because I have to. So even if I had postpartum depression or anxiety, I was just like, nope. I was just like, this. I'm climbing over that. And I, that just comes from a lifetime of identity of like yeah. being a filmmaker and being like, oh no, motherhood is not going to stop that. And that's just me. Like I would never judge anyone else's journey with their career and their balancing of motherhood. But for me, Sarah, like I just needed that so badly, even though it was so hard. Um, it was like the good kind of hard and motherhood felt mm -hmm. kind of like the bad kind of hard, you know? Um, I certainly had a, a journey with breastfeeding and pumping. I just like mostly hated it. It was painful, it was so difficult. And just, I felt so tethered all the time as a freelance filmmaker, you don't get any kind of maternity leave. So like, I just had to create my own and then I was back to work so quick. I mean, it just was so much. And so, um, and I had us not as bad, I'd say on round two with my son, but then it was the pandemic. So it's like a whole different set of challenges where, no one came to visit, you know, like my parents mm -hmm. came, thank God they had to drive across the country from Chicago to LA to be here for the birth because they couldn't fly. Um, so I was, I had some help of course, but like, like a bunch of my friends never even met my son till he was one. I mean, it's just like, nobody was coming yeah. over. It was so lonely. I had no community. Um, so it was better in the sense that I knew that things like this too shall pass. Like I knew that, okay, everything's temporary. Like this is hard right now, but things will get better. Um, but I just didn't have any of the connection, um, that I did on round one when everyone's like, can I bring you food? Or like, I want to, I want to meet Bryce, your daughter. And I'm like, yeah, come over. And like second time around, it's like, okay, no one's gonna, no one cares that I had a baby yeah. and like my whole body has changed again. Um, yeah. So even with, with Ellis, my son, who's now two, um, and by the way, we all talk about like the baby phase, but like, 
my kid just entered the terrible too. Like he's so, so wonderful and so difficult. Even just this morning, I was getting screamed at for 30 minutes because I wouldn't give him animal cookies or something. <laughs> um, it is so freaking hard. Um, so I, I don't know my, my way of coping, my way of finding myself again is mm-hmm. to make films and for better or for worse, that, that works for me. I also go to therapy. I also am very open with friends when I'm feeling overwhelmed. My husband is wonderful as a great, he's a great partner, even though we're having two completely different experiences as human beings. And we talk about it all the time. Like yeah. if it's a heterosexual couple, if it's a man and woman, like you're just kind of set up to fail. I mean, how can you not resent your partner when you're the one going through all of the body stuff, all the changes, your brain is being rewired and maybe theirs is in a way as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just different. You're just never really going to have the same experience, even when you're under the same roof, raising the same baby. Um, So yeah, that was a lot, but I think all of that has come together. um, And I wrote this script called the mother is born. um, And the main character Everly, who's totally based on me is like a career driven person. And it's like over the course of the first three months of, of her postpartum journey, um, how she's coping with that loss of identity and the loss of friendship and the, the change in her marriage. And um, so we have some surrealism in the film. We have this mm-hmm. really, what I hope is a powerful visual of she goes to this party and it's like all non-parent friends. I don't know if you had that experience, but like you go and you see your friends who haven't had babies yet and they just have no clue what you've just gone through and like you are completely different in mind body and soul and they have no idea and they have they don't even know what to ask you they're like how's the baby and you're like good like you just you're like a robot and so there's this scene where (laughs) Everly goes to a party and she's like talking to her friends and all of a sudden all she hears is their her perspective of the conversation is them just saying how free they are they're like oh Uh... I'm so free I'm so free for free for me and then she sinks into this hole and it's Sounds dramatic and dark, which it is, but that's how I felt. Like that's, I had this vision of myself, like being in a deep hole, mm. even when I was around people, I felt so alone. And and as a new mom, you're never really alone. You're like, there's someone always like on you, literally on your body and you still can feel so alone. So um, anyway, we're, we're very excited to start shooting on Monday and, and I'm Gosh, just so hoping cool. that this movie helps other moms maybe they didn't feel that exact way, but like if they see a piece of their experience and think, okay, this is normal, or that was her experience, but here's mine, you know, just if it can open up the floodgates of conversation between mothers, between friends, you know, between family members, um, that is just so exciting to me. So this one feels very raw, very vulnerable. Um, And we've cast this incredible um, actress who has three kids. She had a son five years ago, and then she has eight month old twins. So it's kind of perfect because she's she's right in it. Yeah, but it's cool because she's got like the perspective because she's been doing it for five years, but she's also in it. So I'm like, her name's Caitlin Brandis, and I'm so excited to work with her. And she's, you know, really opening up in every way um, Mm. to to tell this story. So we we just want it to be super authentic and specific, you know, and, and raw and surreal, um, and, and have it be okay to make a film that exists after the comma of, I love my kids, but here's the real story, you know, that that's what I'm going for. So. Oh my gosh. I, there's so many things I want to ask you. (laughs) I, I just feel like as you were talking, I just relived my last three years of life, you know, being a mom. And it's so interesting because I'm at the stage where like a lot of my friends who have had kids are having second kids, third kids, fourth kids. And honestly, like, 
then, you know, when you get married or like when you're dating, it's like, oh, when are you guys going to get married? When you get mm-hmm. married? Oh, when are you going to have a baby? Yeah. When you have a baby, yeah. they're literally fucking asking you about a second baby as your pussy's healing. You're like, bro, that's the relationship the escalator. It's totally. the relationship. I get so triggered and mad about it because my, you know, and it's so interesting that you say it starts after the comma. I really had a hard time even saying the first part because mm-hmm. inside I was like, I don't like this. Yeah. I definitely don't love this. I don't yeah. know why the fuck I chose to do this. You mm-hmm. know, like it when I heard my I've told this before, my poor sister-in-law, if she listened to this, she's <laughs> like, I wasn't trying to be an asshole. But my <laughs> sister-in-law was like, wasn't it just so crazy when they when you see your baby for the first time and like your heart just explodes and, and opens up in a way? I was like, no, similar no. to what you said, he came out. I was like, who is this Japanese baby? Like <laughs> what why do you why do you look like this like an alien he was adorable beautiful but I was like it felt like a foreigner even though we had been literally together I didn't know I literally that was the first words that came out of my mouth I'll never forget that is who Mm -hmm. are you because you just don't know them really don't know them really and now that he's over three years old I really do love motherhood, Mm -hmm. but it really took a shit ton of therapy, medication, talking Mm -hmm. about it. And honestly, similar to you, it took me getting back to work. And what that looked like for me was starting my company, Lady Bits and Leadership, because I love research and I love interviewing and I love producing creative things. And it really was one of the elements that helped pull me out of that hole that you were talking about. And so for anyone who's like listening to this, who's like, I feel this in my gut, I would encourage you to look around and be and ask yourself, like, what are you doing to feed your soul? Mm -hmm. You know, and that could be creative endeavors like you and I, Sarah, Mm -hmm. or it could be like when I took my first momcation, because Mm -hmm. what I kept going back to in therapy was I just want to be alone. I don't want to talk to anyone for a long time. Yeah. I was like, that's all I want. So my therapist was like, well, can you negotiate that with your husband? And, you know, he uh, being a loving partner was like, whatever you need to get back to who you were, because he looked at me and was like, I miss you. And I was like, bitch, you miss me. I fucking miss me way harder than you miss me. Like, and I say that with all the love and care and compassion to my husband, but of course it is just one of those things that your loving partner will never know in the way that you as a mother know and yes they are going through their own transition but the fact that you are taking your artistic ability and shedding light on the grittier side Mm -hmm. of motherhood is really really important um because yeah there is that immediate guilt of like why don't I feel this way you know watching my say like I love my kids but when you really might not feel that yet I mean, I love the saying, like, I love my kids, but I hate parenting. I feel like that's it. Like, mm-hmm. parenting sucks. Like, who wants to be the one being like, no, you can't do that. Or like, be careful, be careful, be careful. Like, I'm so exhausted being the bad guy or the cop, you know, being the person who's like shepherding them through the world and having to dress them. Like, teaching someone how to be a human is exhausting. And that is parenting. It's like, I love my children as individuals, but parenting kind of sucks. Like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I know. And I was the able- one that has to be responsible all the time. And like, 
somebody called being a parent like the cruise director and I just love that because like on the weekends they're just looking at me like what are we doing and it's like why do I have to be in charge of that <laughs> like be in charge of your own happiness which eventually they will but like it's just it's relentless I think it's that's relentless. the hard part it's relentless you it's don't never it's like, end I would love to be the fun aunt like I'm gonna take you to Disney or like go out for three hours and then like that was fun. See you tomorrow. Or like, see you next weekend. Like, no, you go do the Disney thing or you go take them to the beach for three hours. And you're like, I'm an awesome mom. Like, look at me go. And then you bring them home and they're like, I want a snack. I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. I want this. I want that. I'm whatever you did is nothing to me. Now what, you know? And you're like, Oh my God, I'm exhausted. <laughs> when are you going to bed? Like, you're just like, what? So it's, it's like you get these really juicy, amazing moments with your kid when they finally start saying, I love you, or they reflect you in Mm -hmm. some gorgeous way in the world. And you're like, oh, this is incredible. But most of the day is so hard. And you just are craving that alone time, that intimacy with friends, with yourself, with your partner, with the world, like, you're just desperate for connection in any other way. Um, and if, if you're like me, you know, my family's nowhere near me. So it's like, mm. we were promised this like village, but modern parenthood, nobody really has the village unless they live close to their parents. And we just don't, we, I live in LA. I have these dreams of working in film and TV. I'm not willing to give those up. I'm, we're never going to move back to Chicago as far as I'm concerned, you know? And it's yeah. like, that's really lonely too. It's like all your friends are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. I'll, I'll come over we'll, or we'll get our kids together or like, I'll help. And you're like, okay. And then no, why would they, well, they're not going to help yeah. your friends do not come over and help for the most part. Um, so we have just like a bunch of babysitters, you know, we've got one kid in daycare, one kid in school. So it gets easier over time. You get your week back. Like now, if all goes well, I have Monday through Friday, unless, unless they're sick or there's a holiday. Which happens all the time. Which happens all the time. Kids get sick and are so gross. Yeah. <laughs> so if all the trains are moving, you know, I've got Monday through Friday to work to, you know, that's really like where I have to find pockets of time for myself is like during the week, if I want to get my nails done or get a massage or go for a hike, like I better find that time during the week. Cause the weekends mm-hmm. are just like wall to wall. Like you, they're on play dates. We're going to the park. We're going to the beach. We're just trying to spend time together, um, which causes its own levels of stress. So I'm, yes. I'm hoping like my kids are five and two and we're getting, we're hitting a little bit of a sweet spot where they can play together. And like, they're a little bit more independent, but I'm, I've got my eyes set on like five and eight and, and above. Mm. I'm just like, okay, that's when I think things are going to get really good. But oh I'm my gosh. I'm thinking that, but um, I'm just ready to like be out of the diaper phase for good in a couple of years. And just like, I'm done wiping people's butts. Like, I just, I just want to be like, these are my kids and they're awesome. Let's go have an adventure. And right now we're still in like the, just so much crying, so many tantrums, everyone needs a snack and a nap. You know, it's just, it's too much. It's so much. It's so much. And what's so funny too, is like, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, we recently took our son to Europe and mm-hmm. we had him right before wow. the pandemic. So we didn't have him in the That's pandemic. Far from but Hawaii. My God. I know. I know. But we had to do it. And so, <laughs> and I'll say why, but, um, <laughs> We had him, he was six months old when the pandemic hit. So oh, wow. okay. it was like we had a pandemic baby because he was an infant. You know, he had, I had literally just dropped him off to daycare and mm-hmm. after four months of, of maternity leave, and then two months later, picked him up never to put him back in for like another year. Ugh. And so like the relentless feeling that I had when I dropped him off, I literally cried. I was like, oh my God, 
And then I drove off and it was like what you see in movies where they're just like, yeah, you know, like got the bump. I was like bumping music, not worried about my eardrums or his, you know, I was just like, and then two months later, I was like, and I'll take that back. (laughs) I'll take that child back. Thank you so much. Hope you survived the pandemic. We've learned to be so present. Like if you've got a free day to yourself, you might not have one tomorrow. So like, you're just like, I'm going to enjoy the shit out of this. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Absolutely. You don't know what's, especially with the pandemic, with kids getting sick all the time, oh, it everything was can change on a dime. So we're just like, oh my God, I get to get a massage today. Or like, oh my God, I get to go to dinner with a friend. Yeah. <gasps> like you're just thrilled to have time to yourself. Yeah. We had, you know, before having a child, that's how my husband and I, like, that's what we saved our money for. That's what we did was like international travel to go immerse ourselves or just travel in general, just go immerse yourself in a different culture, in a different part of the world, take in the food, meet people, see Mm -hmm. what life is like somewhere else, you know? And so after having a baby during the pandemic, you know, we had just gotten his passport. We had so many plans and the world Mm -hmm. shut down and we all know the rest of that story. But now as the world has been opening up more and more, we -hmm. were like, we're going to do it. And we're going to prove that we can travel with a toddler. Just like we are proving when we, before we had a baby that we're going to be the cool parents, you know? And I think at the end of the day, like you just you just figure it out and all your plans like we've talked about in this interview just sometimes go to shit like I went to Europe and I was anxious the entire time no amount of like hot wine you know like every now and then I got a sliver of like if I got just drunk enough with hot wine (laughs) but even then I was worried like how are we gonna get home am I gonna be Mm -hmm. able to navigate the subway am I gonna walk and then on top of that you're dressing a little Hawaiian baby in like 50 layers of clothes Mm -hmm. (laughs) totally I was like I don't know that I want to go travel with my kid anymore you know if I do maybe domestic only like with a parent with us so you know there are things that you just don't get until you go through it you have all these plans and you know that's something that parenthood has taught me is like fuck your plans yeah that's cute that you have planned no and you know other parents told me that and I was like I'm gonna be different and then I'm I so I'm trying not to like kill parent spirit and you know I don't want to be a downer but at the same time like we were talking about the reason you're telling this story is because we weren't told that or we didn't see it in a way that we could viscerally experience it like what's so cool about this film you're gonna make is someone watching this will be able to with the music and the sound and the lighting and all that will be able to viscerally experience what matrescence feels like what the fourth trimester feels Mm -hmm. like because it's one thing for someone to audibly say to you oh yeah this is gonna happen to you it's another to witness it so i'm I'm so excited to see where this goes is it a short film Um, it's a short film so it'll be I mean I I don't know how it'll net out maybe like 10 12 minutes but yeah and I I I was funny I was struggling with the title for a while and and then I just really landed on a mother is born because that's what it feels like you you're you give birth to the baby as soon as the baby comes out it's all about the baby nobody gives a shit about you as soon as that baby comes out including the doctor the nurse like you're just this like empty hotel like it's just like (laughs) everyone's like, oh, everyone cares so deeply about you when you're still pregnant. And then you get the baby out and it's just, it's just like all eyes go to the baby. And so my, this film, our whole ethos is that it's going to be pretty much right here on the mother. Like you're, you don't have an actual baby on set. I've got this like super creepy fake baby over here. Um, (laughs) We're going to have for some shots, but you're barely going to see it. Like the whole film is doing Mm -hmm. the opposite. Like we're literally filming it in four by three. 
and it's going to be mostly close up on the mom the whole time. And that's really, really juicy and exciting to me as an artist. It's like turning the camera on the person that it becomes invisible. You know, you are just a vessel of milk, of comfort, you know, of, of empty birthing vessel um, once the baby shows up. So what a revolutionary idea to just think about the mother. And so, yeah, it's taken me a long time to realize that I was born on that day too. Like oh, a new yeah. version of Sarah was born that day. And I don't, you don't know that when it's happening. Um, and I just, I hope that that gives some comfort to moms as well as even when I posted like this visual of like a baby blanket and the mother is born, a mother is born written and directed by me, Sarah Mashman, uh, just the response to that visual of like receiving blanket and a mother is born. It's like, even that got such a strong response on social media. And that was really inspiring that might, maybe some moms haven't really processed that yet, that like a new version of themselves showed up that day, you know? Yeah. Um, and it might take a lifetime for us all to recognize who that new person is, you know? And, and, and it's like, even just getting rid of this like culture of like snapping back or like feeling like yourself mm -hmm. again. It's like, yes, but a new version, not a worse version, not a better version, just a different version. Um, and that's that's something I think we can all free ourselves from is like not trying to get back to a carbon copy of who we were before. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I see pictures of myself from before I had my daughter and I'm just like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> like, That was another life. And the world was different, of course, before yeah. then as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, we really are reborn on that day, um, in, in different to varying degrees, I guess. So, um, but yeah, we do have a sex scene in the film as That's well. So exciting. First, first sex scene I'm, I will ever direct, have ever directed. Um, and I'm really excited about it. It's like, it's going to be like one shot from overhead. So basically our main character, Everly is like lying in bed on her so, back. So on she's back. looking towards the camera. Okay. She's looking up above at the camera. And so this is like, I know um, all moms will know the six week checkup mark. Mm -hmm. So she like goes to the doctor and gets like the all clear to have sex, even though most of us at that point are like, I'm all set. Thanks. <laughs> like I'm barely recovered. Um, but maybe some moms felt like I felt, which is like this, you know, wanting to be a good partner, wanting to feel like you are yourself again. So um, our main character, Everly, you know, her, her husband, Aaron is like, essentially like having sex on top of her, like tenderly having sex with her. And then it's almost like a time-lapse of her then breastfeeding the baby right after. So it's like, it's just this, like she is then an empty, empty vessel. Like everyone needs something from you. And I really want to express that like between the sex and the pumping or the breastfeeding, it's all going to be in like one kind of time-lapse-y surreal shot. Um, and I'm really grateful to be working with an intimacy coordinator for that. That's scene. awesome. Um, her name is Liz. And that's really important to me too, is just making sure everyone is comfortable. I mean, we're going to have an all female crew, but even so it's just like making sure my actors feel like they can speak up and say like, this is weird, or this is triggering, or I hate this side of my face or something, whatever. Um, I I'm really looking forward to learning about, um, how to approach a sex scene and make sure that the actors feel comfortable so that they can really express the story you know and, and not feel bad after you know absolutely so, um, it's so important that, that's the goal yeah, yeah maybe so i'll have liz on the show that'd be so interesting oh, to hear go. about how she how she coordinates that because you, you know it is really important sex is such a personal thing it's so vulnerable to be naked in front of maybe strangers or people that you kind of just met during the 
the process of making the film, mm-hmm. but not wanting to push boundaries too much yet also have a realistic sex scene or, or whatever right. you're trying to pro- portray is really important, right, for the storytelling. Right. So that right. intimacy coordinators are a new term that I've just kind of come upon in the last couple months. Oh, and I love, I, I definitely have to talk to one at some point yeah, on Lady Bits of Leadership. But, yeah. you know, it's, um yeah, that six-week checkup is such a farce. Like, any, like, I don't, I'm sure there are women who are having sex six weeks after. I know that because there's people that have babies, like, 10 months apart. I'm like, um, yeah. <laughs> did you just, seriously? Like, I try not to let my face right. <laughs> just be like, what? <laughs> but yeah. I have a hard time with that. So most of the time, I'm like, I'm sorry. How? <laughs> like, right. what? I, like you, wanted to be a good wife. It was six weeks. We were good to go. You know, I think I was still bleeding though. I mean, a whole organ comes out of your body, right? Like, so like people don't know that, like you bleed from, for weeks, weeks, a lot. Um, and I literally got my first Brazilian bikini wax because Mm -hmm. I was so excited. And I think a part of it was reclaiming myself, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to reclaim the sense of like, I can be into, I can feel something different than, than this, whatever this right. is. Right. I can reclaim a part of my old life, which included having sex with my husband. Yeah, being a sexual being in the world, which is like taken from you for a while. <laughs> a while. Yeah. And then you have to rediscover it. Something that I've worked with, with many women kind of one-on-one is, is reigniting the spark, reconnecting with their new body because like you said you look at yourself you're like that's that was me and now this is not me whose body is this yeah Yeah. and I got and I figured I went through pretty much an unmedicated birth right up until like right at around 10 centimeters when I had to get an epidural I was like I can endure literally any pain yeah whatever you want to wax all my pussy hair off go so I did it and I was laughing the whole time like this is ridiculous like why do women do this because I'd never gotten one before but I wanted to like make it special your first one oh my god (laughs) it's special I was like look at my naked pussy which I was like I looked at it and I was like that's what she looks like you know like oh interesting okay she was all bumpy and stuff and then as soon as we started to engage you know I was like get out of me there clearly is still healing going on down there but I was too scared to even look you know I like made Leo look I was like tell me it's not infected because I had to get stitches you know like people just ah they just don't get how traumatic if you have a vaginal or a cesarean birth how traumatic this is yeah this is not like you got punched in the gut you're literally your skin if a huge tear was across your arm or your leg and you had stitches no one would be like go throw a baseball you know like (laughs) or jam something in there yeah (laughs) hey why don't you just hit it real quick bam bam like it's just so funny right and I think a big part of why I love talking about vaginas and vulva and Mm -hmm. sex is because there's still so much mystery And there's still so much stigma and taboo. So much stigma. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So much. So I'm so excited, you know, that you are diving into such an intimate part of a woman's life Mm -hmm. and such a confusing part and a fascinating and gritty. I mean, all these words that you're using, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. It is fascinating. It's gritty. It's dark. It's beautiful. It's ethereal. It's surreal. Like this is 
it's this so is motherhood. for storytelling and yet we Ooh, don't I know. we don't go there. I so. know. Well, yeah. I am just I'm so thrilled that we've had this time together, Sarah. You are you. just such a light in the world and the fact that you're using your power and your voice and your influence and your scrappiness to tell women's stories just gives me shivers. Like I, I just <laughs> when I meet someone who's doing the work, I'm like, "Hell, yes, girl." Yeah same to you oh my god well I can't wait to see all of your films I (laughs) definitely can't wait to see mother do you have a date in which maybe it will be out in the world Um, not quite yeah we're gonna film Monday Tuesday Wednesday of next week and then um I'll be assembling my post-production team and we'll be editing it together probably the next few months um Mm. and I'll probably submit to film festivals so at some point this year if you just keep up with me and the film's called the mother is born um I'll have updates on my website, sarahmoshman.com or Instagram is the best place to get a hold of me at Sarah Moshman. Um, yeah, we'll see. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you again for all the work that you do and spending time with us on Lady Bits and Leadership. Thank you, Sarah. Oh, didn't you love that episode? It was so good. I just love the ability to tell women stories and to help them tell their stories and to give them a platform to tell their stories. I find women so fascinating and their lives are so intriguing to me. If you love Lady Bits and Leadership, do your sister a favor, go on to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for us. The more reviews we have, the more likely it is for women to find our empowering community. I would be so indebted to you. I would be so grateful and full of gratitude if you just took two minutes out of your day to do that. And while you're on the internet, why don't you go ahead and sign up for my mailing list? You can find that on ladybitsandleadership.com. Lots of love to you, my friend. I can't wait to see you next time on Lady Bits and Leadership.